Wireless Chronicle is a digital research and media project as well as an historical archive that documents prison uprisings, protests, strikes, and other disturbances within jails, prisons, and detention centers in the U.S. and Canada. Check us out at PerilousChronicle.com and follow us on Twitter, at PerilousPrisons. Before we get into the content for today's podcast, we have a few headlines from some of the current struggles ongoing inside prisons and detention centers. Near Montgomery, Alabama, at the Kilby Correctional Facility, 11 imprisoned people have been on hunger strike since January 1st in response to the conditions of their captivity. The strike was launched to coincide with the Alabama prison strike 30-day economic blackout called for by the Free Alabama Movement and is planned to conclude on January 31st. The hunger strikers are refusing food and medicine until they see steps taken to curb the rampant prisoner-on-prisoner and guard-on-prisoner violence the smuggling of drugs by guards into the prison, and the deadly impact of the Arizona Department of Corrections negligence in preventing the spread of COVID-19. On January 4th, prisoner Ronnie Miller was beaten by a guard in retaliation for his participation in the strike. He is now out of the infirmary and recovering in his cell. See our show notes for more details and for information on how to write these 11 individuals. On January 4th, 60 ICE detainees held in the Hudson County Jail in New Jersey launched a hunger strike in response to the inhumane conditions and injustice of their captivity. The strikers call on those outside to join the fight against racist immigration policy, family separation, medical neglect, and incarceration. According to the immigrant support group Abolish ICE, New York, New Jersey, as many as 146 people have participated in the hunger strike. 40 detainees have been transferred to Orange County Correctional Facility and three strikers placed in solitary confinement in retaliation for their participation in the strike. As of January 8th, Victor Fonseca reached 50 days of hunger striking in Northwest Detention Center in Washington. Victor is now joined by four women on hunger strike. These detainees strike to demand that everyone in solitary be released, that everyone who is sick be released, that all detainees be freed immediately. Follow La Resistencia Northwest for updates. On this episode, we wanted to try something a little different. This past November, the Perilous Chronicle released a data analysis and article about the first 90 days of prisoner revolt after COVID-19. This was exciting for us as a project as people concerned with prisoners and their resistance. So we wanted to talk directly with our data editor, Duncan Tarr, to give folks an inside look into the Perilous Chronicle project and why we think this type of tracking and analysis is unique and important for the movement against prisons both inside and outside the prison walls. Y'all want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, my name's Duncan. Um, I am a researcher at Perilous and... Uh, yeah, I kind of uh, helped put this this data report together on the first 90 days of prisoner resistance to COVID. Hi, my name is Ridley. I work with Perilous Chronicle as a collective member. Um, I help research events that take place in prison and gather information. Cool. Um, I'm Jordy. I'm uh, one of the uh, primary folks that works on the podcast aspect of the project. Um yeah, so basically, I, I guess I'll just kind of like frame the conversation a little bit. Um, this article came out 
Um, back in November, uh, it's actually gotten quite a bit of uh, positive response, and it was it was quite a it was a long project. Duncan, I know that like sometimes um, we end up on podcasts or whatever, and we end up talking a lot about prisoner resistance in general and and con- trying to convince people why they should care about it. And so this is an opportunity to kind of like delve a little bit deeper than that and really talk about the methodology of the report. So I don't know if you want to start us from the beginning. Uh, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I've, I've been on a couple other uh, shows in the past couple of weeks. And I think covered a lot of different aspects of this, but it makes sense today to talk like maybe more in depth, maybe like the, the nerdiest take on this stuff. Basically. Yeah. What, like when COVID-19 first was, uh, spreading around the world. One of the things, I mean, perilous existed for a few years now, but um, you know, we saw the that when COVID hit uh, prison systems in other countries, there was like pretty massive waves of revolt. So we were paying attention to this, and and then try like basically anticipating that something similar would happen in the United States. Uh, the resistance part of that is great. It's great we were right about that, but um, it's uh, you know the resistance the resistance that prisoners put up uh, is only in response to these pretty horrific conditions. But basically, like the in in uh, March, middle of March, like stuff starts started popping off, like hunger strikes, uh, uprisings, a lot of hunger strikes actually, a lot of ice facilities. We can talk more in in depth about like the spread of, of the of what types of facilities and stuff, but. No, I'm not like a, no one at Perilous is like a full time, uh, you know, we don't get paid by Perilous, so like we do other stuff. So um, it's kind of uh, why this report came out in November is basically like, uh, you know, the first 90 days, the, the report ends um, in the middle of June. Our tracking efforts got kind of uh, sidetracked for a while because of the rebellions happening outside prisons uh, beginning in late May. So we kind of we're working on, on, on this data collection project at, like in real time. And we did some stuff, like we put out an article in the appeal um, with some like initial findings, but then uh, yeah, the George Floyd rebellions happened and it took a while for us to get back on track and circle back to it and kind of finish, kind of like make sure we had all the events or like, you know, as many of the events as we could reasonably uh, gather information on. And then, probably finish it up in the, in the fall and try to make sense of some of it. And then uh, basically through our relationship with this journalist, Ella Fassler reached out to us and wanted to, to help like to basically write about our project and write about prison resistance. Kind of we're like, yeah, we're working on this report and like kind of like collaboratively, she wrote the the piece that actually circulated, published in Truth Out initially, but then end up like on Democracy Now! headlines and like you know, like no name, this, this, uh, like communist rapper shared it on Instagram and stuff. So anyway, that's the sort of story of the report itself. All we do really at this project, it's all coming from, um, people, uh, on the inside, people locked up who are, who are, uh, bravely taking action, uh, in the face of this crisis. What would you say being someone from Perilous were some of the most, uh, like what, what were some of the biggest findings that you found to be, yeah, that you want to nerd out about while we're talking today? I guess it's all interesting to me, but like the, I guess, the, <laughs> but like it's even the one stuff that's maybe not like um, clickbaity. It's like just like it's. I think it's just so useful in general to like actually know concretely some of what happens, even if we don't know like why exactly certain trends emerge. It's like okay, we actually know for sure like like this many this this percentage at private facilities or whatever. Which, 
I think it's something like 30%. Basically, uh, I, I, the, the big finds, I think like the clickbaity finds, are we have 119 events in the first 90 days. And that's uh, March 17th to June 15th. Uh, and that includes events in both the U.S. and Canada. So it's, it's uh, just over 100 in the U.S. alone. And yeah, and, and, and the, the first 90 days thing, it's, I guess that is, is something arbitrary about that, but we needed to, we needed to, to limit the, the scope of the project in some way. But the, the start date is not arbitrary. The start date is there's two events on that date, uh, one on the West Coast and one on the East Coast, in which prisoners are, and ICE detainees like, organize a protest like explicitly in response to how COVID was being handled or mishandled in their facilities. I think some of the stuff that stuck out to me when I was putting the report together, I, w- I was surprised that uh, out of these 119 events, 40 of them were only at 16 unique facilities. So basically there's like a, a lot of repeated events at like the same facility. And then sometimes it was sort of a, a story of like escalation where like there would be like protests that like wouldn't have, would like, the, you know, there'd be some agreement with the warden and then they, the warden would like not actually fulfill their agreement. And then they would like escalate, take another action. In some t- cases it would be like, I mean, we have a lot at the Cook County Jail. They, like, released this report. Like, the cops released a report about it, uh, which was really useful. And listed all these little acts of, like, all these disturbances and stuff. So that's, I mean, that's, like, you know, the biggest county jail in the country. So it, it makes sense. And, and also, the cops, like, released this pretty detailed report. These other facilities, they're like, yeah, they, they would have two or three events um, in, the, in these within 90 days, which is, like, I mean, pretty wild in and of itself especially like a hunger strike and an uprising or something like within like a 90 day period. Like that's a, that's a big deal. It feels like. And then some of the other ones that stuck out, I think for me, the high number of escapes, I'll say a quick, like aside, which is, I, I think it makes sense to just talk, like really be upfront of, of the limits um, of our approach. And like, like there's a real barrier of communication between inside prisons and outside prisons or inside detention centers and outside detention centers. I mean, those walls are porous of course. And like, you know, letters circulate, like people have contraband cell phones, people put videos on Facebook, people talk to lawyers. It is hard to get a, like to be confident in a way about like having a complete picture. And I think we, we really rely a lot on other journalists reporting at Perilous. I mean, I know both of y'all have like worked on a handful of other stuff in the project. And it's like, to some extent that's, that's good because some, sometimes that can be like a collaborative process. But when COVID hit, I think a lot of journalists were paying attention to prison stuff. So that's the biggest side to be like, in this interview we did with Heather Ann Thompson, I mean, she, she makes a claim that's like even stronger. That's like, there might have not even have been a big increase in resistance. There just was a huge increase in reporting. And I'm not sure, she doesn't go outright and say there was no increase, but I think that's like a, that is, it's a limit of our approach, right? Basically it's like, it was hot to topic to cover prisons and COVID, you know? So maybe some of this stuff was like, not as big of a jump compared to prior months but as far as we know it's a huge jump so that all gets me to this number of escapes basically between march 23rd and april 19th so that's only 27 days like less than a month there were nine escapes and eight of those like were uh called in an imperfect way like successful escapes like one like one of one of the nine was like uh it was an escape attempt but they like didn't get outside the facility but well, the, there was eight escapes that like got outside the facility walls for at least a few minutes. <laughs> the minimum was uh, 20, 25 minutes 
They were recaptured at a Southwest Arkansas community corrections facility. So anyway, there was the, the, basically there was these eight events all clustered in like what's l- less than a month. And um, that's one of the things that definitely I was, I was most struck by putting this all together of, I mean, you hear about escape attempts a lot. Uh, there are escapes and like we've studied, looked at other escapes in the past, but um, in a week, you know, there'd be like multiple prison breaks that would, and they'd be like at least out for a couple of days, almost all of them. So, and I think that that escape thing for me is tied to this demand that came out during this period for the demand for like immediate release. Even before Perilous, I think we've all been like interested in, in, in the prisoner movement for a while. And like, that's just not really like, they, they maybe demand better living conditions or better, less rotten food, <laughs> like, you know, uh, accountability for abusive guards, but they don't like actually demand to be released from prison. Cause that's like a ridiculous demand. That's like, not like a, that's not like a demand that the state could meet except when COVID hits and it's this huge crisis and like everything can be rethought. So like there's lists of demands being released during this period in which one of the demands is immediate release from prison, which I I mean, and so for me seeing the escapes, I I totally see them through that light of like, that's a demand emerging during this period. And also people are actually just releasing themselves. So anyway, so those are some of the biggest things I was struck by looking at the report. But again, like, it's it's pretty detailed. Many people put a lot of work into it. Like uh, it has like lots of details about the facility type and event type and uh, private prisons, uh, what weapons the guards used. So I, I don't know. I guess I, I to to send it back your way. What what, what like what, what interested you you both in in the report? Like did did you read through it and like were you struck by anything or like surprised by anything? Yeah, I mean, I think that the really notable stuff for me and and and. To some degree, this ties into why I think Perilous, and not just Perilous, but just like anybody that is helping helping bring to light the activity of prisoners is so important because we can see these kinds of shifts in, we can, especially like a, something like a data analysis of the situation, I think is really helpful because you can actually see the shift of these like emergent demands or emergent tactics or emergent like trends uh, within the prisoner movement that is, that is, is so hard to see if you are not paying attention to every, you know, little detail, or you're not really immersed in the, um, in the world of like prison rebellion. And I feel like, you know, it's, it's probably also like communication between prisons and, and, um, between different facilities is, is very, um, spotty or, 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 you know, Definitely that communication happens, but it's much more, it's much delayed. And I wonder how much like insights into this, you know, people can take into the future with the relationships they have with people on the inside. Yeah, I don't know. The most, the most notable thing is, is kind of what you already said, um, Duncan, which is this demand for freedom. And I appreciated that you point out that this crisis that the, that the virus brought about while really horrible and tragic in many ways, I mean, it's also bringing out this this situation in which everything is kind of up for grabs to some degree, or things that weren't mm-hmm. were unthinkable at one point are now thinkable. Mm-hmm. Prisoners, you know, themselves have taken that and run with it to some degree, and sometimes quite literally running with it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. That's just like probably the most inspiring thing. I think what what you said about sort of how this report or our project might be used i think that's really important and like personally like i i think our approach makes a lot of sense to me i think it's to sort of lean into the sort of like fact-based like well-researched well-documented stuff that like clearly we have a politic 
but what like what you what you're saying is like totally how I imagine the project too. It's like I want to put out really good content that people will, that will actually be useful, um, and and like I don't think anyone else is doing it like or taking the approach that we are. I mean, obviously there's truly inspiring like prisoner movement and outside support for that movement and prison abolitionists on both sides of the walls and we do have something to offer which is like maybe taking a step back and look at the full picture not that we don't also do like investigative like detailed reporting on certain events i think that's also super important but in a, in a sense we also bring that sort of commitment to like well-researched and fact-driven uh reporting and, and uh and, and putting out reports like like this one we're talking about uh one of one of the things that uh Marx used to do when he was trying when he was doing research for like his his books that he was writing basically something called workers inquiry they they would like try to Marx and Engels would like give out questionnaires to like workers at a factory like they were like it was like a data collecting process by like and it would be like just questions about your job and questions about your life and questions about um the organizing going on in the plants and like the conditions of the plants and stuff I'm not the first person to use the term, obviously, but like I think what we're doing is something like a prisoner's inquiry. I mean, I'm clear, like I'm like I'm a prison abolitionist. I don't like, but I don't like I don't need to be to write this report, I guess. Um, but I'm going to use this report in the activities I do, like like outside of the report. And I, I think like having the sort of commitment to well, number one, having a commitment to like hearing prisoners' side of things, like whenever we can. I mean, I think that's maybe that's obvious for for us on the call and maybe for listeners, but. I think lots of like mainstream reporting doesn't in fact do that. But yeah, so like trying to get prisoners' voices into the story, but also like actually not also like dehumanizing prisoners in like a positive way, which I think happens often by like outside supporters in which like, you know, there's sort of like everything is good or something. And like these, these like acts of resistance happen, but we like don't know any details, but like it's just like this sort of like general, I think what our, what our approach does is like, really try to look at, try to figure out what happened. And I think that's, if we want to like actually think of a world without prisons, and I think like starting from what's actually in fact happening, the actual conditions inside, what prisoners are actually saying, what guards in the Department of Corrections are actually saying. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that all makes sense, but I see like, I see our project kind of as like in this lineage of like, tries to be objective, but like, because we need to like have a clear picture if we want to like make sense of, of, of the crisis and, and intervene in the most useful ways. So Duncan, you were just talking a little bit about the importance of the data that we've found in this report and a little bit about how you collected it. Perilous in general, we rely significantly on reports from prisoners who are in prison, then also from the people who support them outside. Um, we often get tips either through social media or directly about events that are occurring inside. And then when we don't have direct contacts, we're frequently just combing the internet, looking for, like you said, other journalists reporting on prisons and events happening inside. How, how do you take that information from the more journalistic aspect and then turn it into like data points for these types of reports. Well, for starters, I would say it's, I definitely see it as a process that is not perfect, that is not like finished or complete, but will hopefully just keep improving as we keep putting out reports like this, which I think we're going to try to 
do something, some uh, maybe one or two reports like this a year. But uh, I, I think I think since the start of the project, we had these like variables that we were using to, to sort of organize. At that point, we were like organizing blog posts on our website. But basically, some of those variables would be like the state that the event is in, the type of facility, which, you know, it's, it is, it gets tricky. It's not like a very clean bureaucracy that cut like across every state lines and city county jails is like one state prisons is one federal prisons then and then also uh, separate from that would be like immigration detention centers so when you say state prison it means like it's a state like department of corrections kind of it's like holds like state people convicted of crimes in which they serve prison sentences at the state level but like obviously those could be public or private prisons uh yeah so i mean i if if i don't know if listeners are not familiar with the project like actually the scope of the of perilous in general is goes all the way back to 2010 we started a few years ago but um we're trying to look at this uh all events or as many as we can uh acts of prisoner resistance and unrest since 2010 since these uh, work stoppages in georgia when we kind of started this this like long timeline project and we have like you know hundreds and hundreds of, of events since then um but definitely the biggest biggest cluster we have is is on this first ninety days. So for all these events, we're look. I mean, we're looking at all these things. We're look, we also like developed a vocabulary around uh, event type, and that's that's actually documented on our website under glossary of terms. Um, I mean, we actually just use we use like a, a Google form. Uh, it's like a you know because it's easy to then it's like a it's a really like intuitive program that then like populates a, a google sheet and then you have a data set so and it's like easy for a handful of volunteers that that worked on on the data entry part of this and uh people know how to use a google form so but yeah but, but obviously like the process though of like turning this event that's unique and complicated into like data points it, you kind of yeah you have to mush it into like a, a mold and and the the, the vocabulary or like the control vocabulary we have for event type is one attempt at doing that. So like, what is like, what actually is a hunger strike? Like, how do we define that? We actually define it different than a food strike. You know, so we have like a definition to explain that like a hunger strike is like not eating usually involves like a kind of a formalist of demands, but a food strike is maybe often is, is more often something like everyone agrees not to go to the chow hall, but maybe they still eat their commissary in their cell or something. So anyway, we have sort of a written out definitions and really we should have them for, for all of our variables because that's like how they actually make sense. How do we actually define uh, even something like a, a private prison? Like sometimes that can be complicated because maybe it's like sh- like shares property with a public prison or maybe like services are privatized. Anyway, you just kind of see what I'm getting at. It's, it's kind of difficult to turn these uh, messy or uh, or events that we don't actually know much of the details about. We have to sort of fit them into this mold we have what else we also collect stuff like um did guards use weapons and if so what type of weapons so did they use tear gas did they use pepper spray did they use live rounds did they, like shoot live rounds was there a guard death was there a prisoner death there wasn't either of those in this in this report but that's something we've looked at in the past looking at our at other data ideally actually we look at uh or i look at a really dope article that one of you two wrote <laughs> that like you have done a bunch of research and all the info's there. Uh, and then and then I click or type in the answers in this Google Google uh, form that would populate the sheet. And then from there you can you can generate the visualizations, you can generate like the interactive map. 
sometimes it's hard to say for sure whether an event happened or not. You'll have probably encountered this too. Like even if it's like um a couple people talking about it on Twitter, maybe they maybe they say their family members in there, or maybe it's an account that says they're in the facility, but it's like it's anonymous, and it's like it's like I I want to believe it. So in that case, then we have to actually like maybe reach out to the Department of Corrections, and oftentimes they will be like, yeah, something happened, like. Sometimes they'll give more details. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll deny it. It is possible there are events in this report that like happen in a different way, or maybe like maybe we call it a riot or an uprising because that's how it was described to us. But you know, maybe if someone FOIA'd it fifty years from now, it would be described much differently. At the end of the day, we can only go off of what we we do have like some some standard, but we can only go off of what, what the information we have. And uh, but yeah, so then in, in that case, if I don't have one of these, well written and research articles that the rest of you are writing uh which i'm so thankful for always uh then it's like yeah try to try to find a good news article really that covers most of it and then think about it and figure out and like sort it it's really just like a sorting process in a way then from there you can say like this percentage happened at immigrant detention centers and you can say that with some i think more authority like authoritative voice than i mean that no one else has has done it except us so it's like if we want to make sense of what I think is one of the most massive waves of prisoner unrest in a decade, then you got to you gotta sort it using the Google form or whatever. And I, I guess I, I'm going into detail here in, in case someone listening to this is like either interested in, in, in helping or like sort of doing a project like this on their own. Because like I think the more of this like knowledge that like we're generating that's like immediately useful to like thinking about resistance and, and struggle, the better. And yeah, I hope like I think it's important, but not just like for me, like I think for the movement or something like the sort of anyone who's interested in kind of making sense of, of this stuff. Just so, but briefly, some of the limits just if, before we talk about the rest of the data is, uh, and some of this I, I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the limits we sort of, we try to think about for like the whole project, for the whole perilous project, there are exceptions for sure, but those are kind of deliberately made. But we try to focus on events that involve multiple people that are locked up that take action together. And that's just because there's so many events happening all the time. Uh, maybe a single prisoner, like a taxi guard. Does it kind of fall within the scope of our project in other ways? Yes, for sure. But we just, we, we're really focusing on sort of collective acts, which like that means, for instance, in this report, there's one uh, escape that is not in here. And it was like actually one of the more, he was like hiding away, like in the woods or in a swamp or something. And it's not in the report, but uh, maybe we should have included that. Anyway, uh, I know I'm personally open to feedback on, on all this. Uh, the other thing we, we exclude, just like, it's also controversial, I think, in its own way, but we, we don't include events that are, like, just prisoners fighting each other. Um, and that's not to, like, shy away from the fact that that happens, like, really frequently and sometimes, like, with horrific effects. And, and often it's, of course, like, in part driven by the same conditions that are driving these, like, so-called acts of resistance because it's just like prisons are super messed up and like they're just terrible places and you know they're violent places to live and that violence is going to be manifested in other ways but i mean sometimes we would include it we would include event for instance that like maybe two groups of prisoners start fighting each other a guard intervenes and that pisses both groups off so then they start fighting the guards and maybe like destroy property and stuff i mean that's I mean, there's at least a handful of those in our in our data set. So, well, then the the limits that are kind of outside our control, uh, like I said earlier, the media coverage. If more journalists are writing about this stuff, then we can find events a lot easier. I guess the same applies to sort of like support groups. I think there's there's likely like a slight bias towards 
facilities that have robust and well-organized outside support groups that do good media work. And the claim here is not that they're like overinflating anything, actually. It's like just that they have, they're really good at like getting word out when stuff happens. And so it makes our job then trying to like aggregate that a lot easier. Like somewhere like Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, it makes sense that that's like a hotbed of resistance, but also like their outside support group is like so good at what they do that it just makes it a lot easier for like us to like understand on the outside. So then it's like if, if there's a, a hotbed of resistance that doesn't have like outside support network that just like isn't as visible to us at Perilous, then it's like, unfortunately, we're we're missing it. And, and so that's a limit that I don't know. I mean, ideally, there's outside support groups that are like amazing at what they do everywhere. But it's like it's hard work and it's like tough work. So that's no that's, that's no shade. It's just like anyway. So the other ones uh, that sort of are beyond our control are prison administrations lying, like the government just lying. They just do that. I know. I I don't know. Like, what? Do you, like, they're gonna say something didn't happen. Like in 2016, they're gonna say there was no riot, but then give 200 prisoners rioting tickets. You know, so it's like, <laughs> so I like, what do you, what do you? I don't know. So like, the sort of efforts at obfuscation from the the state uh, that makes it harder to do research about prisons. <laughs> uh, similarly, it's it's uh, there's you know barriers to communicate with incarcerated people. I think our project does. A really good job of it you know if people are are more honest about their participation in an event or something they're putting themselves at risk again and so there's like you know there's that surveillance thing and it's just like they they can't look at our website like i mean i mean unless on like on a contraband phone or something like you know we have you know we do have a po box we try to like facilitate that direct communication but a lot of it is is coming through phone calls and but you know there's just barriers to communication with the actual participants themselves and the final one that i just think is worth noting because it all speaks to ways it could, you know, future reports could improve. But we're an all-volunteer organization at this point. This is a labor of love. No one's getting paid to be here. Or at least I don't think you two are getting paid. If you are, then let me know because I want some of it. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah, definitely but, not uh, getting paid. <laughs> yeah. So so it just, like, it makes we, – we don't have money. I mean, we have, like, a ba- barely enough money to keep going. So it's, like, that means, that, you know, everything co- – like, stamps to, to write letters cost money uh, – or like even like, uh, you know, digital stamps for like JPay and stuff like this. The website costs money, like, but also like FOIA stuff, like but kind of better research techniques. FOIAs cost money. With a lot more resources, I think uh, we could maybe fill in some of the blind spots we have, um, but we don't have those resources. So that's the limit <laughs> that we cannot control. Anyway, I think this, I think despite all those limits, I think the, the report is not only is it the only one like it, that tries to look at all prisoner rebellions or protests during this period. But also I think it's good. I think it found a lot of the major events um, and many of the smaller ones too. Even if there's stuff missing, I think it's a, a decent sample size. Even if there's a handful missing, I think that the report is strong enough to like actually draw the conclusions that we do. I feel like folks that are that are doing um, uh, solidarity work with prisoners kind of are probably familiar with a lot of those limitations that are inherent, but it, it feels like important to articulate to folks that maybe don't have as much of a background in that. Um, not only how many limitations there are, but also like kind of how remarkable it is that um, that folks are able to 
uh, get that kind of information out in the first place. As limited as it might be, um, I think it kind of a testament to the work and resistance of prisoners and the folks on the outside that support them that like get that information out there. If folks have questions about the limitations of our ability to collect data, you know, one one possible solution, one possible way to help with that is to to start up uh, more robust solidarity networks with prisoners in your area. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like if, if you're like if you look at the report and you're like, oh man, they missed these like two protests. Honestly, that's that's on you. Like, tell us about it. <laughs> like, like I mean, yes. Yeah, like uh, I mean, seriously, I'm I'm trying, kind of joking, but like I think what you said is that's that's really smart. I love that. Like that 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 make everyone's job easier. I think. Yeah. So that leads us to you know missing things or or whatnot. I mean, what are some of the detailed findings in the report you already told us a little bit of the sort of bigger things but what are some of the littler things that maybe you know arguably without the report or without this sort of like effort at data collection may have been entirely missed by people on the outside aside from maybe like folks that have direct relationships with some of those prisoners what are some of those like smaller more detailed findings that can illuminate like certain important questions that we yeah. need to try to answer Sometimes I feel like I don't have all, all the tools to like almost like just because just this feels like kind of an initial swing at things, you know, and it's, it's, it's hard to make sense. I say that to be like, I'm curious what like both of you think about if there are like more conclusions we can draw like from these like initial findings, you know, because I think there's like a second step there that I'm, I'm kind of been grappling with and trying to make sense of the sort of timeline. The big picture, as I mentioned earlier, March uh, 17th. There was a, a protest at an immigrant detention center in New Jersey and also a county jail in Monterey County, California. And both of these events on the same day, they kind of like uh, they were the first events we found that directly said like directly were prisoners or detainees responding to the pandemic. Then from there, uh, the sort of hunger strikes spread along the East Coast. A lot of immigrant detention centers uh, on the outside. This is like the first car caravan protests which now mm. the never again action a sort of jewish uh activist group seemingly like organized the first one as far as i know i would and i mean for sure i think they're basically the only thing i think people were doing until the george floyd rebellion when people realized that if you're all wearing masks to hide your identities also you don't <laughs> spread the virus um <laughs> uh, basically a hunger strike spread along the east coast uh and then uh there's spreads across the whole country like and and I, I one of one of the one of the first findings is keeping in mind all these limits i'm not going to like do an asterisk or a footnote on all this stuff but based on what we found the initial period the first month or so it was like a huge spike uh so basically the, the number of events over time diminishes and this is where the sort of like the second step of the conclusions comes in like i'm not sure there's a lot of questions we could guess or like hypotheses we could propose about why the events diminished over time, but I, I don't I don't know. But I, I do know that basically just in the second half of March, there was 35 events, there was 55 in April, and then 16 in May, and then seven in the first half of June. So like, if we do that by like events per day, that's like 2.5 events a day in March, 1.8 event per day in April. And then May would be 0.54 and June would be 0.53. From what we can tell, there's this, this initial big spike and then it kind of peters off over time. I guess both of you, like, 
feel free to jump in and like if you have even any hypotheses i mean this is maybe this the second report is just maybe we try to like write a follow-up to this and try to make more sense out of it i think some of the information that i found to be things that i would love to see more conclusions be able to be drawn from in the future perhaps with more research done uh were points like how there were 119 events 27 of which weapons were used um and then you go on to conclude that like I'm not sure the exact numbers, but that most of the events that weapons were used in um, to disperse or to put down were in immigration facilities. And I guess I'm just curious, like more more specific detailed information like that around like, yeah, which facilities tend to see more like brutality in putting down uprisings. I guess a separate a separate thought that I've been curious to see more like the next data reports that come out. Um, are just like the the makeups of the facilities of the people who are imprisoned at these facilities, and like uh, for instance, how long how long their sentences are, and and how likely they are to engage in um, uprisings. For instance, in different types of immigration facilities, there might be people from from different places with different political leanings, and how th- those things might influence the likelihood of of some type of resistance event at that facility. I don't know. I just have more questions around. Yeah, how we can yeah. use this data. Yeah, totally. No, that those are all really interesting things. I know this is something that's come up of people wondering about or, or maybe thinking based on a few of these events that like during this period, sort of prisoners who are traditionally thought of as less likely to protest or, or rebel were actually taking action. We have to go back and like look at like security levels and stuff like this. But I think it's a really interesting question. Also stuff like, yeah, like racial makeup of prison uh or of different facilities and man like i guess they get the surrounding area i mean there's so many ways we could expand this the highest number of events in a single state was in during this period was louisiana wanted to like take a little bit of a closer look at that like six, six of those 11 events were at immigrant detention centers um, all six of those detention centers are operated by private companies for a geo group and to our uh, slightly smaller company called LaSalle Management Corporation. There are 11 events in Louisiana, which is the highest rate of events in a single, in a per state. There was no other state or Canadian province that had that many events. Uh, so just in a brief, just to show like the ways this could expand in the future, you know, there's other like uh, research projects like a prison policy initiative. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a handful of just like really excellent uh, websites that have data sets that would supplement ours. Louisiana, what I learned from from them is Louisiana has the second highest rate of incarceration in the country. As of 2018, 1,052 out of every 100,000 residents is locked up. So, I mean, does that explain why there were more events in Louisiana than elsewhere? No, but I mean, it's likely related. Um, But then, like, also, there's things that aren't data sets that maybe we we could turn into data sets that would be useful. But stuff like uh, the opening and closing of facilities over time, especially especially something like um, federal facilities, like, and especially, especially immigrant detention centers, I think I go like between Bush, Obama, Trump, it's like these things like fluctuate pretty drastically in Louisiana, like, and across the the South uh, in general, there's been a bunch of of, like new facilities that have reopened basically. 
so anyway, there's like these other things that are that I think you're kind of gesturing towards, like ways we could expand. And you know, there's this like rapid increase of opening ICE detention centers, and then there's like all these rebellions in those detention centers. I'm remembering in particular something that definitely like inspired me to look more closely at this stuff is um a friend and comrade uh, Alejo wrote article in uh, Abolition Journal. Uh, looking at state prison well looking at lots of different stuff but like particularly looking at state prison budgets and the the states which saw the biggest or where like the hottest sites of rebellion during the 2016 national prisoner strike basically like there was this correlation that's like again not causation but a lot of these uh states like they were states in which that they were in fact shrinking the the prison budget okay so well that's good we were abolishing prisons, but the fact is they weren't actually releasing prisoners like at an adequate rate. They were like cutting the prison budget in Michigan. A lot of that actually is coming from the libertarian right. So like just because they just care about like balancing the budget or whatever the hell and <laughs> uh, and but they're not actually taking the steps to release prisoners. So they're literally closing prisons in Michigan, but just overcrowding other prisons. Does that explain why rebellions popped off? No, it's like because that would be just like you know almost like crude Marxism of like exploitation equals rebellion or something i think that looking at that some of this stuff um and expanding it in the ways that that we're talking about right now can i think i can be really useful to try to make sense of sort of terrain of, of stuff and especially to swing back to what what, what joy said earlier like things that were unthinkable are now thinkable Yeah, I mean, something that I've been thinking about, actually, just when we were talking and you were kind of laying out the, reminding me of, of the sort of timeline of events that is covered um, and how the numbers go down is like, there's a couple of things. Also, the, the fact that the car caravans were notable at that time. I was just having a conversation with a friend the other day. This is maybe a little bit of an aside, but I, I think this kind of um, data collection can be useful to see these emergent trends because we can see concretely in some of the ways that like what people were doing to help prisoners or like support prisoners or show solidarity with prisoners during the pandemic, which was this car caravan uh, tactic emerged. And then when the George Floyd rebellion took off, we saw the car caravan tactics start to be used in the midst of the rebellions in response to police violence. And so you know, it's not, it wasn't totally determined by just this emergence of the car caravan and the pandemic um, to support prisoners and detainees. That tactic was covered as a phenomenon in Ferguson and Baltimore as well, but, um, but it really proliferated in interesting ways, kind of going from sort of prisoner and detainee support circles um, and flowing into um, this broad-based rebellion on the outside of, of prisons. But um, mm-hmm. I think there's other, you know, there's things that are notable about that timeline as well, you know, that bring up questions for me about like, yeah, how much of this was was uh, an increase in reporting because you can see that the numbers start to go down as the George Floyd rebellion is heating up. Um, yeah. And so like, does that just, does that mean that prisoners... Uh, were slowing their rebellion or does it mean that like just the gaze of the media was now turned towards all the protests and uprisings it you know in the wake of George Floyd's murder 
Yeah, and I'd be curious too, um, you know, there's other questions. I know that there were, you know, solidarity messages sent from prisoners to the streets, you know, in solidarity with the George Floyd uh, uprising as well. And I'm curious, that's, that's another question about expansion, about like how protests and uprisings within prisons play off of or are influenced or influence things that are happening um, outside of prison. The report ends definitely like as the George Floyd stuff is ramping up. There are a couple events in here that are still in the scope of a report. There's a couple of events that uh, reference both COVID and George Floyd stuff. Also, I didn't say this actually, but the report does not like require an event to articulate itself as a response to COVID because that would be that would cut the data set in half. I think in every pl- in everywhere we have a prisoner quote, we do they do reference COVID. I mean, even if it's a maybe maybe even spurred by something else or something like. If they talk to the media, they reference COVID. Uh, but we also include any, just any event that happened during this period because, like, it's just the COVID period. So much of what we're talking about is, like, this rapport that we all put together is sort of, like, um, it's really, like, step one. It's, like, this can be, like, the foundation. Because then it would be, like, where were car care? I mean, do a, do a whole report on car caravans, right? And then, like, compare the two. But it's, like, we don't have... But, you know, like that's, that's, we need to, we need to do it or someone else needs to do it. But <laughs> uh, then we can, we can maybe do the comparison. If it's all right with y'all, maybe I'll just talk through a couple of other sort of findings that are, again, not like, like earth shattering conclusions that change the, our, everyone's perspective, but just like some of the other like findings of the, the report. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. that'd be great. Out of the 119 events, we, we found um, 16 events that uh, for sure had more than 100 participants. Like there's likely many others, but if, if we weren't sure of the number, which is super, super common, then we, we just input two. If it was like I said, a group of prisoners, you know, even if it implied the group was like 40. So for sure we know that 16 of the events had more than 100 participants. This is interesting because particularly uh, if we limit, if we just look at these 16 events, there were seven that occurred at state prisons, seven at immigrant detention centers, one at a U.S. federal prison, and one at a Canadian provincial prison. Provincial prison you know, is kind of the equivalent of a state prison. But putting that aside, like seven out of 16, or that's, four, that's 44% of these events, almost half of these events were at state prisons. Even though that the, the, most, like the most frequent facility type was immigrant detention centers, if we just look at large events, half of them are at state prisons. And I, 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 I mean, again, I like. I think we can we can theorize of like why that is, but that stuck out to me, um, for sure. Also, just of the large events, similarly, uh, seven out of sixteen, forty four percent of these of the large events were at privately operated facilities, and that's also much higher than the full than the full uh, data set, which is like that's in part because most prisons are not private prisons, right? They're like run by the government, not by private corporations. But still, in the full in the full 119 events, um, the, only 27% of those are at private facilities. But then the large events, events with more than 100 participants, 44% of them are at private facilities. There's always this debate about like how do we think about private facilities, and there's like a sort of more like centrist or like liberal perspective that like private prisons or like privatization is the problem and. I think that's just absolutely wrong, but whatever. So one of the findings we've had is that like there's a there's a higher seemingly a higher rate of larger events at a, at at private prisons than in like the full full data set. 
a, a facility can actually have more than one facility type. So the total number here is more than 119. And we take that into account when we're like pulling the other numbers, but like just, just for like a facility type, like some facilities are like immigrant detention centers, but they're like in county jails. So we just say, we say it's both. We say it as two types, so we do this two types. Um, and then we, that just means we have to make sure to not like count it twice in others in other ways. I, I talked about the escapes earlier on. This was kind of a pet project of like seeing the length of escapes, um, like the number of minutes or days or months that people were actually on the run. And we, that, that data is in the report online. But it, it's interesting, like I said, the cluster of them right in the right when COVID was hitting. I mean, for me, just to speculate, like I think back on that period and like it, it feels like everyone obviously the pandemic has like caused like countless like deaths that were in fact preventable. It's like a truly tragedy. But I think during this period, everyone was like almost like paranoid. They didn't really know what to expect. Right. Like it was like the first like quarantine lockdown period. And like during that exact period. Um, there's these like eight es escapes and it makes sense to me that sort of in this like almost like hyper panic moment, everyone just like is trying to, to jump ship. There was a, one of these was actually caught on camera. I'm sure not on purpose, but, uh, it, it was the one I think in, I think in Washington, the Yakima County jail on the, t on, uh, the 23rd. And those, those, the last one of them was captured four days later. So at least a couple of them were out for four days. But this, the, the, it was captured on video, and this guy was just sitting out near the jail, just like literally vibing, like sitting in his car, listening to music. And he pulls up his phone and films it, and these people literally jump over the fence. Like So anyway, so just uh, different than the sort of planned protest that, that escape was uh, caught on camera. There's, like, there's a couple other findings in here, but I, I, I would really just like recommend people kind of dive into the report themselves. And, and honestly, as like someone who worked on it, I'm really, really looking for feedback and uh, whether that's critical or, or positive or whatever, because it's like, I think it's, I think it's important, but I, I think there's likely blind spots in it and there's likely ways we could be improved. Uh, maybe we release like a, an updated version or maybe just for the second report. But I mean, I know there's people that are just like way, way smarter uh, about data stuff than me out there. And I would love to hear from you. But um, just the, the last thing I'll, I'll say is just the sort of, we try to look at what we call uprisings basically we found 24 uprisings so out of these 119 events we classify 24 as uprising and for us that means an uprising exceeds the usual scope of a protest and it's often destructive violent chaotic unpredictable and it often but not always is uh it actually like describes itself it, uh, it's a collective attempt at expressing maybe we think of a riot as like not articulating itself and maybe uh uprisings do a little bit they more like um self-aware of some sort of political aspiration or something i don't know but not always so anyway 24 of the 119 events we call uprisings big disruptive events often property destruction these sort of things and just to, to swing back to the debate about public and private prisons, 21 of these uprisings, 21 out of 24, it's 87.5%. They're at facilities that are uh, not operated by private companies, which in the full data set, like 27% of the events are at private facilities. So that's like, so this is, it's, it's a higher rate basically of uprisings compared to the full data set are at public facilities. That's, I just think that's like worth pointing out because like, I, I think I would hope that the sort of argument about like the exceptional state of private facilities has been or the debate about that has been settled, but I don't think it actually has. 
and like just if we look at like where these like bigger uprisings are happening they're not they're usually not at private facilities that i also can maybe speak to maybe something like um more limited options at a private facility i'm not sure uh, completely now i'm like going taking that next step into speculation but whatever the case that's what we found is that there's like a really high rate of out of the uprisings we found they're they're often at not private facilities even compared to the full data set yeah and uh i guess the another thing we found by looking at these uprisings is that t- uh, 10 of these we know for sure were attacked but uh with like weapons 42 percent of the uprisings and you know that's that's higher than the full data set we found weapons used at 23 percent of events in the full data set that might be due to uh, these uprisings are generally covered in a lot more detail by journalists because they're I mean, oftentimes they'll have to call in like a riot squad or something. It's like a big deal. So maybe we just know more about the repressive acts used by the guards, whether that's tear gas or pepper spray or non-lethal rounds in some cases, like uh, rubber bullets, whatever, non-lethal in quotes, because they are in fact lethal. But for what it's worth, there's uh, these uprisings, there's a higher rate of weapons used of what we found. We break this down in the report to actually by a by weapon type. But yeah, so so I mean that's I think there's a there's a, a few other things we didn't really cover. There's also like the the data set itself where people can find stuff that that is super super interesting that we missed. Um, man, I would love for someone to like rip the report apart and be like, these are all like the problems with it. And then, again, I think I think Perilous is is actually serving this function that no one else is really doing the way that we're doing, and I think that's good and important. But I also um, I uh, want to just keep getting better at it and it's almost like too big a responsibility in a way like no like this is the only account of the of all the prisoner protests in the first 90 days and it's like I would love for people to to look at it closely and interrogate it um, as we've honestly just kind of like scratch the surface of. Well thank you so much for talking with me and Jordy today about this data report it's very fascinating it has lots of good images and detailed charts that people should definitely check out. Thank you so much to all the prisoners who have risked their safety further to uh, contribute to sharing this knowledge with folks in the public. And thanks so much to the prisoner support groups who support those folks uh, and the journalists out there doing that work as well. Yeah, uh, just to echo that, I guess, I think that we're we're kind of like, in some sense, like aspiring journalists and data researchers here. And I think we do a, a pretty good job and I'm, I'm proud of the work we do. But like, Honestly, this report wouldn't have circulated the way it was, the, the way that it did circulate, if, if it wasn't for that collaboration with Ella Fassler, the journalist that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And I think if you are like a journalist or listening to this, like we're like only really the some of the people that help out with this, with this project. I mean, it's yeah, as we referenced earlier, like people starting prisoner support groups, like not only can like do direct aid to to people to people inside, but also help just share knowledge of what's going on and you know that would help our project i think it would help the movement as a whole i mean if you're interested in in this stuff like in perilous or in the data report or and doing like data work um i think we're looking for a sort of a volunteer like freelance journalist to, to help with researching events and and soon after that i think um we'll probably put out a call for like volunteers to help with with stuff like uh, related to the data. And that could be stuff like data visualizations. It could be stuff like streamlining our workflow around data 
I think it's fun. I think it's rewarding, and I think it's like uh, we need to be doing this work to, to actually make sense of, of what's going on around us, especially since something like like prisoner rebellions, because these walls they're supposed to separate us, and sometimes do a pretty good job. And I think highlighting the the courage and bravery of, of prisoners who are literally fighting for their lives against COVID and the mishandling of it by the state. I mean, I'm continually inspired by that, and I think that if if you're interested in that and, and like highlighting that and I mean, I personally, not even collect for the collective, I personally would love to work with like people who like actually know how to do data visualizations <laughs> much better than I can. Um, so yeah, I, pre- I appreciate y'all like wanting to, to talk about the report too. Um, I've spent a lot of time on it and I'm, I love nerding out about it. So. Yeah, thanks Duncan. Thanks Ridley for doing this. Um, hopefully we will have many more to come and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, to this little bit of a different format for our podcast. It's an experiment, and hopefully you enjoyed it. And that's it for this week's Perilous Podcast, a news and oral history project from Perilous Chronicle. If you like what you heard, please consider donating to help us improve our work and like and rate us on iTunes. Thanks.